Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Father Peter Joseph on the topic, The Martyrdom of St. Edmund Campion. This June 2007 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday evening apologetics lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Father Peter Joseph is the parish priest of St. Dominic's in Flemington, Sydney, and a holder of a doctorate in dogmatic theology from the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome. There was a man called George Eliot. After some time, the Catholics called him George, or no, they started calling him Judas Eliot. He was the one through whom Catherine was captured. He'd been going around England as a devout Catholic, going to Mass, going to Communion, getting to know Catholics, getting to know which houses were the massing houses, as they were called, even getting to know which houses had priest holes and so on. He happened to be at a place called Lyford. Parsons was on his way to Norfolk, and the uh, sorry, Camden was on his way to Norfolk, and they asked Parsons for permission to visit Lyford, where there was a man who was in prison, but he'd sent a letter to Camden saying, please visit my wife and family and some Bridgetine nuns who live in my house. So Campion and Parsons exchange hats as a souvenirs of each other. At this time, this was 11th of July, 1581. And they bade one another farewell. And that was the last time the famous duo ever saw each other. Six days later, when Campion had said Mass of Lyford, attended by Eliot, Eliot had entered the house with the heretic a priest catcher. Eliot found to his great surprise and delight that Campion was the one saying Mass. So he sent, his, he sent the heretic away to the magistrate and said, in one hour's time, bring everyone here. So the house was surrounded while they're having a meal after Mass. And they went through the house, a band of men looking in every nook and cranny for the priests, and then, when they realised there must be in a priest hole, smashing any walls that looked thinner than others. And they went around smashing. And right until the following morning, they had still not found them. So well constructed was this priest hole. Day broke, Monday, 17th of July. An afternoon and a night had been spent in fruitless destruction. The sheriff and his men were angry and they despaired. And George Eliot was embarrassed at having gotten them to catch a priest and seemingly there was no priest in the house. Eliot was walking down the stairs and then he suddenly had a thought. He clapped his hand on the wall over the stairs and he said, we haven't broken through here. So they started smashing it and that's where three priests were found. Father Campion, Father Ford and Father Collington. They confessed to each other done their brief penance and were ready for God's will to be fulfilled. So Campion was led to London, he was placed in the Tower of London, he was forbidden to communicate, to communicate at all with outsiders. Catholics didn't know what had happened to him. All they knew was that he was in the Tower. Three times in the Tower he was tortured on the rack. In case you don't know what the rack is, the rack was like a wooden bed that you stretch out on, flat, and ropes are tied to your hands and legs. And then a wheel at either end is turned to stretch 
your legs and arms. And the man who tortured Carrigan, as I remember Jesuit priest relating a sermon, said that he boasted that he made Carrigan a foot longer than God had made him. The most shocking, shocking torture, one of the most shocking tortures ever devised. Well, three times Catholic was put to the rack. Who confessed to you? What did they confess? Where did you say Mass? Where have you been? After this, or after the second time that he was racked, he was summoned to the tower for the debates with the Protestant theologians. We don't have time to talk about it in detail, except to say, this book came out in 1999. I only learned it about a year ago. It's the text of the debates in the tower. When he had these debates in the tower with two Protestant theologians, there were Catholics who took notes. And some of the reports were almost verbatim. And even when we have two accounts of the same debate, the differences between them are minor, which show that, that uh, they were both very faithful recorders of what is being said. So you can read here the parry, the, the arguments back and forth between Campion and the Protestant ministers. And what I find amazing is Campion was brought to these debates, no books, no preparation, no knowledge of the topics to be disputed, no knowledge of what they were going to say. He was brought from a shocking prison, having been tortured, put on a seat without a desk, without books, without any preparation, and at every point he was able to answer the objections, and they pulled objections out of the Bible, out of St. Paul especially, out of the Fathers, arguments without any warning, and he answered every single argument. He was not allowed to put forward his own arguments, his own objections. He was forbidden. He was only allowed to answer what they objected to him. After the first debate, they decided he was so good, they would limit the audience. So they moved it to a, another location in the tower. And this time only about 13 people were present. But word had got out over England. There were four debates held in all. They discussed the canon of the Bible, faith alone, the invisible church, the fallibility of the church, the presence in the Eucharist, and so on. Who orchestrated the debates? The, it must have been Lord Burley, Chief Minister of Elizabeth, and it was in trust, the Bishop of London, Bishop Aylmer, was told to arrange them. He did so against his will. And at the end of the four debates, the higher ministers, the Queen's Council called them off, and Aylmer said, I'm delighted. And the reason why he was delighted was, the word had got out that in a in a blatantly unfair competition, with no preparation, Cambrian had been the victor in the debates. The Protestants put out their own version, saying, oh, we won, we beat him hands down. They put out their own censored version of the debates. But word was out. And even Protestants who were there were amazed at Cambrian's meekness, humility, learning, erudition, and quick repartee, and ability to answer every objection. And one of them was, uh, what was his name, Philip Howard. This so moved him, he ended up becoming a Catholic and himself, himself died a martyr in prison some years later. Henry Walpole, a Protestant young man, a, a law student, was another man who attended at least one of these debates, so saw Camping in the flesh. Henry Walpole, by the way, I'll mention later on what happened to him at Camping's execution. I'll have time, but it's too important. We can't, we can't leave him hanging. We'll give you license. Thank you. <coughs> okay. So, as I say, perhaps fair-minded as well as disillusioned Protestants reported that Campion, far from being discredited in a blatantly unfair contest, had proved the able advocate. Above all, in his logic, 
He overturned them with his logic and his consistency. When you read what some of them had to say, a couple of them were Puritans or radical Protestants. One of them argued that Christ's command to love God and love neighbor cannot be fulfilled, but Christ commanded it anyway. So Camden said, well, he may as well have commanded us not to love God and neighbor. Okay. Father John Hart was a priest in the tower when Camden was there, and somehow he managed to keep this lengthy diary of what was going on in the tower. He records on, his, on this day, 31st October, 1581, Edmund Campion, for the third time, tortured upon the rack after the debates, and this time the worst of all. And this time Campion was so cruelly raped and tortured that he told a friend who found means to speak with him that he thought they meant to make away with him, to do away with him on the rack. So cruel was the racket. Next day, his keeper asked him, how do you feel? And Campion said, not ill, because not at all. Lost all feeling. Witnesses of Campion's trial and execution noticed that his fingernails had been torn out. Torn out. And yet, at the debates, humble as well as zealous for the faith, and not, not complaining about the wreck, but complaining about the treatment of other Catholics. He was put on trial. What can I say about the trial? He and 14 others were put on trial at the same time for conspiring to overthrow the government and kill the Queen. Of course, it was just nonsense. And back then, you didn't have a defence lawyer to defend you. You had no lawyer defending you. you were, if you were prosecuted for treason, you were not allowed to summon witnesses in your favour. The prisoner in the treason case was not given a copy of the indictment until he was presented before the jury. Oh, that's wrong. That's what I'm being charged on. Oh, good to know. Juries were frequently told what verdict was expected of them. And if they didn't come up with the right verdict, they'd be sent back and they wouldn't be given food or drink until they came back with the right verdict. But the fantastic thing is, we have the full record of Camping's trial. Judge, Camping, Sherwood, Bryant. Exactly what each one said, back and forth. The prosecuting attorney and Camping's reply. Howell State Trials. It's online, by the way. Just do Google, Google book search and write Howell, H-O-W-E-L-L, Howell's State Trials. You can read the trials of Thomas Moore, St. Robert Stubble, St. Edmund Campion, and many others. Thomas Moore, it's not full, but unfortunately it's just summary in second hand, but with Campion, it's line by line, verbatim reports. Campion, when he was charged, said, I protest before God and his angels, by heaven and earth, before the world, and this bar whereat I stand, which is but a small resemblance of the terrible judgment of the next life, <laughs> that I am not guilty of any part of the treason contained in the indictment, or of any other treason whatever. He had to lift his hand up to confess not guilty. He couldn't lift his hands. The prisoner next to him kissed it and lifted it up for him. And so he pleaded not guilty. He was brought back for the trial. The first thing he said when he spoke was against the collective trial. He said, to summarise it, how can the jury listen to various charges made against 15 different people at the same time and remember who is guilty of what and who is not guilty of what and who is partly guilty and who is wholly guilty 
With a collective trial, you are guaranteed to confuse the jurors, and therefore you are making justice an impossibility. And the judge said to him, it seems you have had legal counsel, Mr. Cantor. And Cantor said, no counsel, but a good conscience. Cantor said at his trial, we seduce the Queen's subjects from their allegiance to Her Majesty. What can be more unlikely? We are dead men to the world. We only travelled for souls. We touched neither states nor politics. We had no such commission. And they all cried, we have been condemned for our religion. And Campion, and did the trial record, made at the time, proves in a way that the crime was religion, and only religion, the treason was rubbish. Campion says this publicly, and it's recorded. There was offer made unto us that if we would come to the Protestant church to hear sermons of the word preached, we should be set at large and at liberty. Like Pascal and Nichols, there were two Catholics who had given in and had been given liberty for agreeing to go to a Protestant church. To change our religion and become Protestants, that in truth was what should purchase us liberty. So that our religion was our cause of our imprisonment and consequently of our condemnation. Of course, if the Queen and Privy Council had really believed that these men were seditious and would be assassinators of the Queen, they would hardly set at liberty a group of men on the basis that uh, as long as they agree to go to Protestant church, we'll set them free. I mean, you don't let would be murderers free as long as they agree to go to Protestant church. So Campion said what he could, spoke as eloquently as he could. He concluded his, his closing speech to the jury God give you grace to weigh our causes aright and have respect to your own consciences. And so I will keep the jury no longer. I commit the rest to God and our convictions to your good discretion. <coughs> so the trial took about three hours. The jury went out for one hour and came back with a foregone conclusion naturally. Someone during this interval brought Campion a glass of beer to refresh him after his labour. Obviously not a Puritan. The lawyers and gentlemen present thought that an acquittal for Campion was a certainty. The evidence was so flimsy. There were only three witnesses and all of them were obviously lying. And some of the claims were so absurd as not even to be physically possible. They were claiming that they travelled from Rome to Reims and Reims from back to Rome and Rome to England, all within a matter of weeks. It was just ridiculous. But one writer said, judges and jury had all been bought and the desire to, to gratify Caesar prevailed. So the Attorney General told the jury what was the Queen's will, which meant the verdict of guilty. After the verdict of guilty, Lord Chief Justice, Campion and the rest, what can you say why you should not die? Campion. It was not our death that ever we feared. We knew that we were not lords of our own lives, and therefore for want of answer would not be guilty of our own deaths. The only thing that we have now to say is that if our religion do make us traitors, we are worthy to be condemned but otherwise are and have been as true subjects as ever the Queen had. In condemning us, you condemn all your own ancestors, all the ancient priests, bishops and kings, all that was once the glory of England, the island of saints and the most devoted child of the Sea of Peter. For what have we taught 
however you may qualify it with the odious name of treason, <coughs> that they did not uniformly teach to be condemned with these old lights, not of England only, but of the world, by their degenerate descendants, is both gladness and glory to us. God lives, posterity will live. Their judgment is not so liable to corruption as that of those who are now about to sentence us to death. Father Cotton, one of the other 14 convicted and condemned on his return to the tower said, having heard Father Camden speak, I'm quite willing to die. <laughs> and so the sentence was pronounced. They were to be hung, drawn and caught. But just before that, back in the Tower of London, Campion was visited by his sister, his younger sister. We don't know her name. It might be in the Tower Book of Visitors. I'm trying to find out. And his sister had to tell him on behalf of the lieutenant of the Tower, look, if you agree to become a Protestant, we'll give you a benefit of a hundred pounds a year. What, what a promise, what an offer to a man who's gone through torture and risked life and everything to think 100 pounds is going to tempt him at liberty and so on. Anyway, that might have been the first time, certainly the last time he saw his sister for years and years, maybe 11 years or more. Judas Elliot came to visit him. This is what he said, if I thought that you had to suffer anything but imprisonment for my accusing of you, I would never have done it, however much I might have lost by it. Cameron did not say, as I would have, Gally! <laughs> Cameron said, if that's true, I beseech you in God's name to do penance and confess your crime to God's glory and your own salvation. And Elliot said, yes, but I'm in great danger. Catholics might slay me if, if they catch me for my treachery. Campion said, you're much deceived if you think that the Catholics push their detestation so far as revenge, yet to make you quite safe, I will, if you please, recommend you to a Catholic Duke in Germany, someone he knew when he worked in Bohemia, where you may live in perfect security. So this is what Christ living in Campion offered Judas living in George Eliot. Mr. Delahaye's, Campion's keeper, was so struck by Campion's charity towards his lying, false accuser who was being on his death, he afterwards became a Catholic. Later on, one of Campion's um, enemies was in, the, was in the tower, and Mr. Delahaye said, before I had a saint in my keeping, now I have a devil. So, the sentence for high treason was hanging, drawing and quartering. And it should probably be called drawing, hanging, and quartering. What it meant was, you were drawn to your place of execution on a hurdle, which was tied to a horse's tail. So you're on the ground, on a hurdle, with your back there, and you feel the bumps, of course, going along the road, as the horse would ride to the place of execution, which was Tyburn, at Tyburn Square. It was a place called Tyburn Tree, sort of an erection of, of a triangle supported by three poles. So you were drawn there by a horse. Once you were there, the halter was put round your neck and you were hung. And then, they might have let you die while hanging, but sometimes they didn't, because you didn't fall enough to die. 
Then they would slip the rope so you'd fall to the ground. You were, of course, your hands were tied, so you'd fall to the ground, tied, having been hung. And then, while you were still conscious, therefore, the genitals were cut off and the stomach was slit open. The intestines and heart were removed and burnt before your eyes in a fire waiting there. And then the other organs were torn out and finally the head was cut off and the body divided into four parts. Quartered. So that's what they call hanging, drawing and quartering. Or really drawing, hanging and then quartering. Who inspired that idea? It was invented in the 1200s for some William fellow who was a pirate. It was a sort of special execution for this notorious pirate. And then it, it was practiced I think the last one was St. Oliver Plunkett in 1679 or 1681, whatever. So at some point, the prisoner died of strangulation or hemorrhage or shock and harm to vital organs. It has to be one of the most sadistic forms of execution ever invented. And sometimes at executions, when the man was hung, Catholics would come forward and grab his body and pull him down to make him die from hanging, to spare him the agony of dismemberment. And at other times, they asked the executioner to leave him hanging until he was dead, before the next grisly step. It seems from the account of Campion's death that he died from the hanging, because the Catholics made the executioner wait. So the day of martyrdom, 1st of December 1581, Camden left the tower. There was a vast crowd outside. Camden looked cheerfully round and said, God save you all gentlemen. God bless you and make you all good Catholics. Then he knelt and prayed, facing east, concluding with the words, Imanus tuas Domine commendo spiritu meo. Into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. Sherwin and Bryant, Father Sherwin and Father Bryant, who were being executed with him, were on the one hurdle, Camping was on a separate hurdle. They were dragged through the gutters and the filth to Tyburn. Father Christopher Isam, a priest who saw the martyrs on their way, always declared that they had a smile on their faces. And as they drew near Tyburn, actually laughed. And there was a cry raised among the people, but they laughed, they don't care for them. There was a throng of people along the streets to Tyburn, and there was an even bigger throng at Tyburn itself. The throng of people exceeded all that anyone could remember. They'd been gathering all the morning in spite of the rain and the wind, and now when the herders were driven up by the horses, the clouds divided and the sun shone brightly. And there were many good Catholics present who wanted to see these martyrs for the faith die heroically. These three rare patterns of piety, virtue, sanctity, innocence, fortitude. So Catherine was put onto the cart. He stepped up, let's say about this high, as high as the platform here. He was ordered to put his head into the halter. So he did, with the seal around his neck. And after a small pause, he waited for the crowd to quieten, because condemned criminals were allowed to speak briefly at this point. And he spoke out. Spectaculum facti sumus dei unto these These are the words of St. Paul in English thus. 
we are made a spectacle or a sight unto God, unto his angels and unto men. Verify this day in me, who am here, a spectacle unto my Lord God, a spectacle unto his angels and unto you men. Then Sir Francis Knowles on the side interrupted him and said, Confess your treason against the Queen! Acknowledge yourself guilty! Cambridge said, As to the treasons which have been laid to my charge, and for which I have come here to suffer, I desire you all to bear witness with me that I am thereof altogether innocent. And someone from the Privy Council called out, You're denying things proved by evidence in the trial. Well, my lord, said Gavin, I am a Catholic man and a priest. In that faith have I lived, and in that faith do I intend to die. If you esteem my religion treason, then I am guilty. As for the other treason, I never committed. I never committed any. God is my judge. But you have now what you desire. I beseech you to have patience and to be, permit me to speak a word or two for discharge of my conscience. But the enemies of Catherine interrupted, the enemies of the church, and kept calling upon him, confess your crime, confess your guilt. And he replied, I protest that I am guiltless of all treason and conspiracy. I crave credit to be given to this my answer, as to my last answer made upon my death and soul. The jury might be easily deceived, but I forgive all as I desire to be forgiven. Someone called out, Do you renounce the Pope? He said, I'm a Catholic. And someone called out, In your Catholicism all treason is contained. He ignored that. He prepared himself to drink the last draught of Christ's cup and began to pray. Then as he was praying, the Protestant minister interrupted him saying to him, say, Christ have mercy upon me. Because, you know, if you just make a confession of faith, you go straight to heaven. And, of course, he didn't have any faith. Or some prayer like that. And Cambridge looked at him and said, you and I are not one in religion. Wherefore, I pray you, content yourself. I bar none of prayer, but I only desire them of the household of the faith to pray with me, and in my agony to say one creed. Then he began to pray again in Latin. Pater Noster, our Father, Pater Noster. And someone called out to him, Pray in English! Pray in English! But he answered, I will pray to God in a language that both he and I will understand. <laughs> he began to pray again. Pater Noster, quiescent trees. Ask the Queen's forgiveness! Some idiot called out. And pray for her! He answered, In what have I offended her? In this I am innocent. This is my last speech. In this give me credit. I have and do pray for her. Then Lord Charles Howard asked him, For which queen he prayed? Thinking, Queen Mary of Scots? Or Queen Elizabeth? He wanted to know. And Catherine answered, Yea, for Elizabeth, your queen and my queen unto whom I wish a long, quiet reign with all prosperity. And as he was saying this, the cart was drawn away, and he fell, the force of the rope, 
and stayed there until he was dead. And then the dismemberment of his body began, and Catholic gentlemen were there trying to grab any pieces of the body that they could. But there were guards around to make that impossible. <laughs> Catholics did everything to get relics at these martyrdoms. One young man dropped his handkerchief into the blood and picked it up. He was arrested and jailed immediately. Large sums of money, rich men, would say to the guards, I'll give you 50 pounds if you give me that jacket. Nothing was obtained. They wouldn't hand over anything. And so all of his clothes were burnt. The only relic that does survive that I'm aware of is the ropes that tied him to the hurdle are on display at Stonyhurst College in uh, Lancashire, England. Father Ralph Sherwood was immediately executed afterwards. And thirdly, Father Alexander Bryant. And Father Bryant claimed again, I'm innocent of all deeds or even thoughts against the Queen. Father Bryant was only 28 years old, had a beautiful angelic face. They used to call him the handsome boy of Oxford when he studied there. And then he said, these were among his last words, I rejoice exceedingly that God has chosen me and made me worthy to suffer death for the Catholic faith in company with Father Campion, whom I have revered with all my heart. Near the block where Campion's body was being chopped up was the young man I mentioned, Henry Walpole, a law student, a Protestant. He'd gone merely to see. Remember, he'd been to at least one of the debates in the town. As the hangman was throwing the bits of the body into the cauldron where they were burned, the, the uh, intestines, some of the bloody mixture splashed onto his clothes. And Walpole said later, I feel at once I must become a Catholic. He converted, entered the seminary at Reims in France, later joined the Society of Jesus, was ordained a priest in 1588, was sent into England in 1593, where he was apprehended. He was sent to the tower where he was frequently and severely racked, and like Campion, condemned and executed as a traitor in 1595. Walpole, Campion and 38 others have been canonised collectively by Pope Paul VI as the 40 martyrs of England and Wales. You can visit the exact spot of Campion's execution where Tyburn Tree once stood, at the corner of Edgware and Bayswater Roads opposite Hyde Park in London. To finish, American poet essayist Louise, Louise Imogen Guini wrote a, um, a Life of Campion, and this is how she ended it. Oh no, this is how she ended her article in the Catholic Encyclopedia. Historians of all schools are agreed that the charges against Campion were wholesale sham. They praise his high intelligence, his beautiful gaiety, his fiery energy, his most chivalrous gentleness. He had renounced all opportunity for a dazzling career in a world of masterdom. Every tradition of Edmund Campion, every remnant of his written words, and not least his unstudied golden letters, show us that he was nothing less than a man of genius, truly one of the great Elizabethans, but holy as none other of the world. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Father Peter Joseph. 
For more Lumen Verum apologetics lectures, visit cradio.org.au.